Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. My guest today is Rick Allen, author of the book Inside Pitch. Mr. Allen, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. So I saw you, I don't know how I saw you, somehow on Facebook, you might have been advertising your book, and I was intrigued by the story, and I asked you to come on, and you said yes, so pretty excited about hearing the story about the Seattle Pilots. Yeah, that's where you heard it. That's where you saw it. It was on Facebook. That's right. So we were talking earlier before the season, I mean, before the show started, and I mentioned to you that I'm 49 years old and I never even heard of the Seattle Pilots before. Right. And I mentioned right back that somebody else just said that to me today. They said anybody under 50 probably didn't know that there was a Seattle Pilots team. They're the only team in modern Major League Baseball history to go bankrupt in one single season. Hmm. So they started in April, they ended in September and never played another game. They ended up in Milwaukee in a bankruptcy sale. That's how the Milwaukee Brewers came into existence. All right. So we're going to get to that. But but, but first, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where do you live? Did, did you go to college uh, anywhere? Uh, just tell I me about yourself. Washington, which is just south of Seattle. So I'm a Mariners baseball fan. So I know, uh, you know, Mariners history and I know baseball history in the area. Uh, I uh, am in Arizona now for three months out of the year, I've been going to Arizona spring training every year since 1986. I was a baseball player that, that didn't have any speed, so my baseball storied career ended in high school. At the end of high school, I uh, couldn't play college ball. I just didn't have the, the speed or the talent. So, uh, But I've been a baseball fan my whole life. My, my first uh, foul ball was when I was selling ice cream at the Spokane Indians ballpark, AAA team for the Dodgers way back in the 60s. <laughs> and I was taking my I was taking my my uh, ice cream bucket back to fill it back up. I heard the crack of a bat. And I was on the outside of the stadium. A ball bounced off of the fence and bounced into my ice cream bat ball uh, basket. Wow! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a foul ball magnet. I probably got you know, no matter where I sit, foul balls come my way. I probably got five or six in my in my lifetime. I've got a total of zero. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how it happens. It is funny how it happens. So anyway, uh, my baseball's been my family. My mom in the 1950s played. My mom was a coach and a ball player and an athlete. And in the 1950s, she was playing uh, softball in uh, in Elsinore, California, and was a third baseman, which is what I ended up being a third baseman. Mm-hmm. And then she was a coach and stuff like that. So I baseball's been in my family. Uh, then, and her dad played 
uh, minor league baseball back in 1916 for the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers minor league teams. And curiously enough, he was his career ended when he got hit by an inside pitch. Somebody beamed him with an inside pitch. And uh, the, he got well just enough, uh, well in time to go uh, to World War I. So that was the end of his career. So are you a writer for a living, or does, uh, did you just do uh, this on the side? In, I have a degree in journalism, an mm-hmm. uh, uh, undergraduate degree in journalism, and I was a sports writer and things like that in high school and college. But And I, I, I was a public information officer in the military for a while. But on the whole, my career has been uh, in uh, administration. I've been a CEO and an executive and things like that. So I, it was a combination of journalism curiosity and uh, an interest in management and administration and uh, my, my family's baseball background that took me to inside pitch. I was, I was sitting in Africa three years ago on a tour of Africa with my wife. I didn't know anybody in the tour group. And a guy was at the table, started talking baseball. And, of course, I perked up because I'm a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, I, I, and he was telling funny stories about this and that and Guys were screwing up, and they were administrators, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, I said, well, who's, who'd you, who were you with? And he said, I was with the Seattle Pilots in 1969. He said, I was the 22-year-old chief financial officer of the Seattle Pilots Major League Baseball team. At wow. Age 22. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah. I said, you got to be kidding me. And he says, no. And, you know, and I just fell into it. I'd never seen a Major League game. I wasn't even thinking about it. I, I had a, he said, I had an internship. I was at a, he didn't even have his accounting degree when they hired him for the AAA Rainiers. I mean, AAA Angels, mm-hmm. which turned into the pilots. Uh, Seattle, uh, Seattle Angels were the AAA team for California. They bought the franchise and then turned it into the Seattle Pilots in 1969. He was 19 when he was uh, hired by the Angels, just in business school, didn't even have an accounting degree. And in 24 months, he was the chief financial officer of a major league baseball team. It was incredible. Yeah. Wow. So I, 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 I said, well, let's, when we get back to the States, if you don't mind where you live, he lives in Arizona. And I said, well, I'm there in the winter. How about if we meet? I'd like to continue this discussion because I had read ball four by Jim Bouton and ball four is a hilarious baseball book if nobody's if somebody hasn't read it they should read it it's considered one of the top 100 books of the century by the new york public library system and the only sports book on the whole list of 100 and so that was about the 1969 pilots but it was about the players on the pilots and i thought well this guy's telling me about the administrators on the pilots and they're just as quirky as the players were so i want to learn more about this so we met in arizona and he starts talking to me. He says, yeah, me and my my friend, uh, who's also living down here in Arizona, Jim Kittlesby, uh, you know, we both worked with pilots and then went to Milwaukee. And I said, that's funny. I know a guy named Jim Kittlesby. I used to work with him up at uh, Tacoma and Pacific Lutheran University. And he said, yeah, that's him. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Jim Kittlesby, you're talking about the same Jim Kittlesby that I am? I didn't even have any idea that he worked for the pilots. So I got him and Jim and me together. And they just started telling stories about their time working with this team that was going bankrupt in a single year. And they'd led the league in attendance for 15 years at the top of the league in attendance in minor league baseball before they got to be the pilots. So everybody at the time, 
naively thought, well, this is a slam dunk. And then everything went wrong. Yeah. So they, they lost they lost the team in a single year. And all the stories they were telling were, some of them are pretty hilarious. So I thought, you know what? This book's going to write itself. i, I got to write this down. It's too good to pass up. So you just happened to be in Africa hearing a guy tell stories about the pilots, and that's how all of this started? Exactly. I never had any idea in my mind, not the faintest clue, that I would ever be writing a book about the Seattle pilots. The wow. only thing I knew about the pilots was Ball Four by Jim Bowden, and I, and I loved the book, but it was just part of history, you know, and I knew somebody else had already written about it, so I, I didn't have the slightest inclination to be writing a book about the pilots. But then he started to talk about these characters in the front office and how this whole thing fell apart. And it just kind of fell in my lap. Wow. So I was doing a little research on uh, on them getting the team. Yeah. And I guess, like you said, the minor league team was good, so there's probably a big push to get a major league team. And I saw that the Indians were considering going there in 64. The, yeah. the Kansas City Athletics in 67, but they moved to Oakland. Yeah. And so the pilots were actually set to be a team in 71. But yeah. because there was no team in Kansas City, that's what pushed it forward. Right. Exactly right. And that was probably the, the beginning of the end right there. Because the Sorianos, the guys who bought the pilots, had actually run the AAA team in Seattle for a number of years, and it had been very, very successful. In fact, Dewey Soriano was the uh, president of the Pacific Coast League and was, in 1955, named the Sporting News Executive of the Year. So it's not as if they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they knew what they were doing. They knew Seattle was a good baseball town. And so they started to put together this purchase but right as they were kind of getting to the finalized part of the purchase, when they thought they were going to have three or two or three or four years, well, more than two, three or four years to transition, Finley said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving Kansas City and I'm going to Oakland. I don't care what the league says. And they, I mean, he basically forced their hand and they all at the end, thinking he was going to cause chaos if they didn't let him go, let him go to Oakland. And that immediately put them in the position of having to put a team back in Kansas City because Kansas City was yelling their heads off yeah. and and tried to take and had a powerful senator who was who basically said, look, I'm, we're going to take your antitrust protection away if you don't put a team in here. We want them now. And the minute that happened, then they had to come to Seattle and say, well, you know, we were talking three years, but guess what? It's going to be next year. So they were they were scrambling, and these guys, the Sorianos, were not big money people. They were baseball people, you know, kind of minor league baseball people who loved the game, who wanted Seattle to become a big league city, and thought they could put it together over a three or four year period. And they weren't part of the moneyed interests, so it was going to take them time to build it. And all of a sudden, they didn't have the time, so they started throwing things together anyway because they was they'd already kind of committed to it. And baseball needed them as much as they needed baseball. And that was kind of the beginning of the end right there. So I know one thing that I saw is that the Seattle minor league team, I have it as the Rainers. Is that what they were called? Well, it's just like any minor league team. It depends on who is their, uh, who is their uh, 
sponsor at the time, who they're affiliated with. Okay. So for a long time, they were the uh, Seattle Angels. They were the California Angels AAA team. Oh, okay. And prior, prior to that, they were the Seattle Rainiers. Oh, the Rainiers. Independent okay. AAA team. And so uh, as their affiliations changed, just like in Tacoma, they used to be the Tacoma Giants because the San Francisco Giants were their affiliated major league team. Now they're the Tacoma Rainiers because they're independently affiliated with the Seattle Mariners. So it, it changes all the time. That was one of the difficult parts of the book, trying to get all that straight. Right. So they were a very successful team, like you said. And one thing that I read is that they actually had to pay a million dollars to yes. because yes. They, they were losing that team. They had to pay a thousand a million dollars to the league. Is that what it was? Uh, I, uh, I, I don't think they may have had to. I know that they need to. They needed to, the league required them to purchase the Angels first of all, and they had to pay for that. Then they had to pay for each player that they drafted, and each player that they drafted was one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. So they had an expansion draft. They needed millions, you know, over a million dollars actually to purchase the AAA franchise, transition it to the pilots, and then they had to pay for each player in the draft. And they didn't, because all this was happening a lot sooner than they thought. Yeah. They didn't have the money, so that's how Daly got in the picture, because Daly had already been interested, as you mentioned at one point. He was interested to move Cleveland there in 1964, and he liked Seattle. So, so Major League Baseball, I think, went to him and said, hey, we, we, these guys are a little bit of trouble here because we we hoisted them into the league a lot earlier than they thought. And are you interested in being a part owner of a team in Seattle? And he agreed. So he bought 47% interest in the whole team and the cash that he brought helped pay for all the players and pay the franchise fee and all that kind of stuff. So the stadium they played in, it was called Six Stadium? Yes, yes, and it was. And it so was, it's it was built in 1936 by a guy named Emil Sick. So it was Sick Stadium, but it was on its last legs. And one of the one of the deals was, yes, yeah, we'll give you a team, but within two years, you two or three years, you have to have a major league stadium because that that one's not going to work. Well, the Sorianos agreed, thinking they had three years to work the community and get a stadium built right. and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden they only had one year, so they ended up in this really poor stadium that was kind of falling apart. I mean, they were building seats on opening day still. People were ripping their pants open on bad wood and, and sitting in, in newly painted seats and all this kind of stuff. There's a, a series of funny stories about uh, the stadium there. I mean, they, they had porta potties outside for people to go to. This is a major league stadium with porta porta potties outside. Wow. And they and they couldn't flush the toilets upstairs in the press box until the seventh inning when they had any kind of a big crowd because there wasn't enough water pressure. So there's oh and the players had to go to their hotels to take showers. That's how bad it was. Wow. So they I I read something about they had the uh, the plans ready to go for what is what was going to be future known as the kingdom. So they had those plans, but it was going to take a while. So they had to play at that little stadium. And I had read that it held like 19,000 people or something. And 
and they were they told them they had to build even more seats to hold people. Well, okay, so let me back it up a little bit. As a as a minor league stadium held nineteen thousand. Yeah. The city the city agreed to build it up to thirty thousand as part of the deal for bringing in a major league team. Right. But they never they never got it built. The city and their contractor never could get on the same page. And these guys, the two sources for this book who worked through this bankruptcy and were on the team and then went to Milwaukee, both were involved in that stuff. And they never got more than 24,000 seats built. And they were, I mean, they were literally building them on the morning of opening day still with walkie-talkies. And as people came up to buy tickets, somebody on a walkie-talkie who just got done pounding on a seat they just put in would call in, yeah, you can sell row seven, seat eight and nine. And then they'd sell it to the guy standing at the gate. They just got it. They just got it put in. So uh, now to the to the other part of the deal, which is the kingdom you're talking about. They didn't have they didn't have plans that were finalized. There was a levy going on in Seattle called Forward Thrust, and Forward Thrust was a levy that was going to pay for parks and recreation and a whole number of projects. But one of the projects that got inserted into it was a project to build a major league stadium for both football and baseball. Mm-hmm. But that had not yet been passed. So the, the Sorianos had to spend half their time in that in the early going to make sure that levy passed. Because if the levy didn't pass, everything else was going to just completely fall apart. Well, the levy passed. But the kingdom, as it turns out, had lots of political problems in Seattle trying to figure out where to place it. So the kingdom didn't end up getting built until 1976, seven years later. Wow. It's hard for me to believe that they gave these guys a team and they were nowhere near being ready as far as I can see. Well, they had to give them a team because Kansas City demanded to have a team that year or they were going to end the the, uh, antitrust exemption in Congress, which would change – I mean it would make them go – a lot of the owners – got into those teams because they had that antitrust exemption and they could control the salaries, control the players, mm-hmm. you know, they were in full control. So the, the idea of having Congress change the, that drove them to put a team in Kansas city. The minute they did that, they had to go to Seattle who had already, they were 90% done with the deal and say, look, Seattle, we got to have, you know, and it's going to be 1969, wow. 1971. And, and, they, and so it was. It was. They both just were between a rock and a hard place. And then, of course, you know, uh, they, so they had not yet begun talking to the TV people about a major league TV contract. So they had a really crappy TV contract. They they had a really mediocre radio contract. They had to borrow money from the concessionaires. So to pay the concessionaires uh, in order to get the team. So the concessionaires uh, only gave them 20% of concessions as a way to help make the payments back. So they had no other source of revenue except people coming into the stands. And if they didn't hit a million, they didn't have any other source of revenue. Hmm. And what happened was, first of all, they had all kinds of rain early in the season. And, and also, the stadium wasn't in good shape. And the team was bad. That One of the things that happened... And because they got rushed into it, is that the team, the pilots, the management decided we need to pick guys who, they may be older guys who are 
on their last legs. But we've got to pick guys who the fans are going to recognize mm-hmm. because we need to get them in the stands. And if they don't recognize who's playing, that's that's going to really hurt us. Well, they did that, and it worked for about the first two months. And then, you know, the older guys ran out of steam. Yeah. And then they started then they started getting hurt. And the and the whole thing just completely fell apart on them. Yeah, I saw where they were flirting around the five hundred mark and then they just took a nosedive and yeah. they and they ended up finishing forty five games out of first. But yeah. one one thing I found amazing with all this bad stuff you're talking about, they ended up out of twenty four teams being number twenty in attendance. So I find it hard to believe that there was four more teams that got less people. They actually had 1,900 at one game at one time was their low. I I can't believe that people were even worse than that. Well, San Diego was an expansion team, and they had worse attendance. The Philadelphia Phillies had a string of really bad teams. They had worse attendance. The Chicago White Sox had been struggling for a really long time. They had worse attendance. And let's see, who was the other one? Chicago, oh, Cleveland, which, and they've been struggling for a long time, which is oh, wow. why Daly got out, of the, got out of the picture there. So they had all these teams that, that were below them in attendance, but what they did have is they had revenue sharing. It was a different kind of revenue sharing then. But they had revenue sharing. They had TV contracts. They had good radio contracts. They had good press coverage. They had stadiums that weren't falling apart. They had good some concession income. You know, they had all kinds of other ways to keep themselves afloat and the pilots didn't have any of that and that's why they died they didn't have any other source of income except revenue from people in the seats and that'll kill you all your legs were in one basket okay so we kind of gotten started talking about how they began we kind of dabbled in the problems a little bit but your book mostly focuses on the mistakes by the front office so we're going to take a break and then we'll try to get more into your book. We'll be right back, folks. You're listening to Astros Baseball. All right, folks, we are back with Rick Allen. Uh, now I want to ask you, uh, give me some details. Let's talk about details on what actually went wrong in the front <laughs> that'll office. Long, that'll be a long discussion. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you could probably talk for eight hours about the problems, but just kind of what did you talk about in your book, the detailed right. problems with the front office? Right. Okay, so we started off with kind of all the difficulties coming up with cash to run the team and all the all the TV and radio revenue and concession revenue and revenue sharing that didn't, didn't, wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So they were behind the eight ball. So what that meant was everything else had to go right. And so uh, uh, Bob Schoenbachler, one of the guys who's in the – uh, in this book as one of the key sources, was the 22-year-old CFO. Well, how do you become the 22-year-old CFO of a major league baseball team? And you've never even seen a major league game. So the answer was they got they hired him as a AAA guy, and he just kind of continued to make uh, his way up. But they hired a uh, experienced finance guy mm-hmm. to kind of be Bob's guy. He was gone in four months. He... He had no inclination to be a part of the team. He put his feet up on his desk and called his friends. He let Bob do all the detail. And so in four months, this is before the season even started, because he was in the transition team. He was fired. 
and they called Bob in and said, we had to fire this guy. You're, you're our backup. We know you're 22 years old, but the, we talked to our auditors, and they say you're doing a good job. So we want you to be the CFO of this team. And Bob said, I can't do that. That's over my head. He turned him down twice. Wow. And then they finally convinced him the third time. So their first hire, actually it was their second hire. I'll talk about your, their first hire. Their first hire, uh, uh, other than a baseball hire, was the CFO who got fired in four months and a 22-year-old took over. So that was that was one. Luckily, Bob was good. So that saved their butt a little bit. But in when they bought the franchise from the Angels, the Angels, in, I think, I, this is a speculative thing on my part, the Angels said, we'll also send you with this purchase our assistant general manager, Marvin Melks. He can be your general manager because he's been with a major league team. He was with us in 1962 in California when we were an expansion team. You know, he looked really good on paper. And the, the Pilots had a really good uh, general manager on their AAA team who was really popular. He was called the Dean of Seattle Baseball. His name was Ido Vanny. And they moved Ido Vanny out for some reason, and they moved him into a public relations slot. And they moved Marvin Milks, the assistant general manager for California. Oh, yeah, he was also in charge of the Angels. He, you know, the Angels, uh, the uh, Seattle Angels as a AAA team reported to him back in California. Mm-hmm. So he, he was familiar with them. So it looked really good on paper. They hired him. They moved out this very popular guy who had all kinds of success, and he turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. He was a yeller, a screamer. He kicked holes in doors. He kicked holes in his desk. Nobody would get near him because he, he was always just totally out of it. Both of these guys that were the sources said he, he seemed to be just mentally unbalanced. He was just nuts. And nobody would talk to him. Nobody would tell him the truth because he would go bonkers. And if, even if they did tell the truth, they said nobody would listen. And he wouldn't listen to anybody. So, and he was in charge of the draft. And he drafted whoever he wanted, didn't listen to his scouts, mm. and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, first they hire Marvin Milks as a GM, which turns into a disaster. Their second major hire is a CFO. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's fired in four months. Then they hire a guy from Houston, by the way. They hire two people from Houston, both in marketing. And uh, so on opening day, everybody is scrambling. They're building seats. They're doing all this other kind of stuff. You know, trying to figure out how do we handle all the disasters that are going on, ticket offices and scrambling around, trying to get information on which seats to sell and everything else. He's got his comic book collection laid out on his desk, and he's perusing his comic book collection on opening day while everybody is scrambling. And he had heard about this guy previously. He, he This is 1967, 68, 68, when he started with the team in transition. He was their guy who went out and gave all the speeches to people and tried to convince them to buy tickets. And he carried a shoulder holster with a gun in it in 1968 in Seattle, Washington. And so he'd already come in question. Well, anyway, Dewey Soriano, the owner, walks by. This guy, this is on opening day, is looking at his comic book collection. And Dewey says, what are you doing? And they guy says, well, I got comics here. And really good comics. You want to see them? And whatever. Making that part of the conversation up. But something like that. Yeah. And Dewey says, you're fired. He fired him on opening day. 
Then they had another guy who was also a marketing guy who was in charge of their special promotions. He used to put a bunch of the special promotions. He'd overbuy. He'd put it all in the trunk of the, the car, the company car. He'd take his car out, open up his trunk to sell stuff out of it and keep the money. So he was fired. Then they had two scouts, uh, minor league guys, uh, working on their, you know, knowing who the minor league players were, all that kind of stuff. One of the guys, one of the minor league guys was a drinker and apparently got in an accident with a company car, with a sec- and was married, by the way, with a secretary, which is what they were called then, and didn't, and quit coming into work. So it was just one, it was one guy after another in really kind of important positions. And as this was happening, every time somebody get fired, they couldn't hire anybody new because they didn't have any, you know, they're in trouble money-wise. Mm-hmm. So Jim Kittlesby, the other source, kept getting these new titles. For instance, they said, okay, Jim, we just fired our community, you know, a presenter, and we want you to be out there making presentations. So Jim, who had other duties, ended up giving 103 presentations out in the community, and then they gave him the job of being the special promotions guy when the promotions guy got fired. So he was the promotions guy. He was in charge of bat day because this other guy had just been fired, had to figure out how many bats to buy. There was supposed to be a big event in Seattle called Seafair, which is they have uh, hydroplane races, and at the time in the 60s, the biggest event in Seattle. And they were having that day on the same day. And so they said, well, nobody's going to come here because nobody's coming here anyway. So that's only about half the bats. The stadium was full. They, they had promised a bat to every single person, and they only had half the bats. Wow. So Jim and Bob both had to go out and take bats from families. They decided this was a good idea, which it wasn't. <laughs> and take bats from people who they'd already given them to and then hand them to families who didn't have any bats. And Jim told this story on himself. I mean, he says it was my fault. I mean, we analyzed the numbers. We didn't think we'd have half the people there. Yeah. But it, but it happened. So it was just one thing after another, after another, after another. And the whole season went that way. I, a good example is, so their all-star was Mike Hegan. He couldn't go to the all-star game. He got injured. So they gave a guy named uh, Mincher, the, his all, Don Mincher, the mm-hmm. all-star slot. Mm-hmm. Well, Mincher goes 0 for 1. But the highlight of the game for the pilots was that when Boot Powell of Baltimore forgot his batting helmet, and I learned this from somebody online, he says, I was 14 when that happened, and I was at the game, and what I remember is Boot Powell came to the plate with a Seattle Pilots helmet on. That was the that was the highlight of the Pilots' all-star game. <laughs> Boot Powell going there with a helmet on. Wow. So it was just one thing after another like that. I mean, uh, and then little things, little things just kept happening. And in the end, they it, it was clear they were running out of money. So, so now let me switch to Milwaukee for a minute, because at the same time, Bud Selig in Milwaukee later became commissioner of baseball, had been a the biggest public owner of stock in the Milwaukee Braves. When the Braves left Milwaukee in 1965, in 1965, to go to Atlanta in 1966, so he sold his stock, and he'd been looking to bring a team back to Milwaukee. So he had made a deal in 1969 to buy the Chicago White Sox. We remember when we talked about 
poor attendance. Yeah. The White Sox were one of those four teams. They were really struggling. So he and the Chicago guys made a deal, and he was ready to bring them in, and they had to take it to the American League to get approval. And the American League turned butt down. They said, no, we this Chicago at the time was the second biggest city in America. They said, we want two teams in Chicago. Yeah. So we're not going to allow this sale. And so Bud, already having lost the battle to keep Atlanta and now lost the battle to bring Chicago to Milwaukee, was looking for a team. And, of course, he had had a lot of inside connections by that time because he trying to buy another major league team. He'd already lost another major league team that he wanted to keep. So he had friends. I'm sure Bud Selig knew about the precarious position of the pilots. So sometime secretly in midsummer of 1969, Bud's representatives, or Bud himself, I'm not sure who, started talking to Seattle. And by the time they got to the World Series in October, they had a deal. And they finalized the deal in secret at the October World Series. Now, the problem was Major League Baseball didn't want the team to leave Seattle after a single year because they were concerned about the same thing they were concerned about when Kansas City got screwed. Mm -hmm. You know, some pretty uh, big-time senators would take them to task. And so they were figuring out all kinds of ways. But nobody else could step up. Nobody in Seattle was interested yet. Nobody was adding money. The Boeing Boeing company was going through its bust. There was a member of you, uh, you probably don't know this, but there was a big billboard in 1970 that said, well, the last person out of Seattle, please turn out the lights. Because the Boeing company had to fire 50% of their workforce because of the downturn in the economy. Wow. So, and, the, and the kingdom wasn't being built yet and all that kind of stuff. So they had, they had to be sold because, I mean, well, they had to go bankrupt is what happened. Yeah. Milwaukee's attorneys basically said, look, baseball is saying Seattle's got to stay. Seattle is saying, we won't. We, we, we'll go broke. I mean, there's no way for us to survive here. And so the Milwaukee attorney, attorneys suggested bankruptcy and that then uh, Bud Selig could pounce and be the buyer in a bankruptcy sale. So that's exactly what happened. That took all the way into April of the following year. So all of the Seattle pilots, thinking they were going to be Seattle pilots, were in spring training all year long, including, uh, you know, all these guys and, you know, hundreds of players, literally. And on April 1st, April Fool's Day, it was announced publicly that the bankruptcy had occurred and that the team was going to be going to Milwaukee. Spring training had already ended. And oh, the wow. team trucks had been loaded up and they were waiting in Utah to be told whether to go west to Seattle or to go east to Milwaukee. They got a phone call saying go east and they turned the trucks and they went to Milwaukee. So Milwaukee trucks, trucks got to Milwaukee. I'll give you a second just, just a second here. The trucks got to Milwaukee like six days before the season started. They didn't even have a minor league system yet. Oh wow! Oh, I was going to ask you if uh, I was going to ask you if uh, Milwaukee already had a stadium ready. Yeah, the the stadium that they actually Bud Selig had brought in Chicago a couple of times. 
to have games in the stadium that used to be the Milwaukee Braves stadium. Oh, okay. So it was, you know, it wasn't in great shape, but it wasn't, it wasn't dilapidated. Like, you know, uh, Six Stadium was a minor league stadium and a, and a low-end minor league stadium. I would say the Brewers uh, played in the Atlanta Braves stadium, which was a middling major league stadium at the time. But they, and they, and they made a deal with the city basically saying, until we have uh, attendance of at least a million, we'll rent the stadium from you for a buck a year. And Milwaukee did that. In Seattle, they were paying them big money rent for a stadium that was on its last legs. And yeah. in Milwaukee, they got the stadium for a buck a year. Wow. I forgot to tell you one of the, one of the uh, stories about Marvin Milks and, and all that. I mean, he got, he got badly uh, outdrafted by Kansas City. And part of it was because they decided they would take older players. But they also drafted a guy named Lou Pinella. Lou Pinella, who, you know, uh, was a darn good ball player, and he was in spring training all spring. And on April 1st, April Fool's Day, a year before, they traded Lou Pinella to Kansas City, and he became the American League Rookie of the Year. Another and mistake. Lou later became the manager of the Seattle Mariners and took him through their greatest years from, I think, 92 to, to 2002 or something like that and was and was the Mariners' best manager in their history. Um, Lou, by the way, is the only uh, guy in Major League history to have rookie cards with three different teams, Cleveland, Washington, and the Seattle Pilots. And he only played five at-bats for Cleveland. Then he went to Kansas City, didn't have a card, and won American League Rookie of the Year. Wow. So I was going to ask you about Seattle. You said that they didn't do a good job of uh, getting a TV deal. How come? Mm-hmm. Wh- why not during the season were they able to uh, fix that? Well, I, I think it's because, <clears throat> one, the stadium was in such disrepair uh, to, to figure out how to broadcast from there was probably a difficult issue. There wasn't any data on how, you know, who, who would be watching, how many people would be watching. And right off the bat, even though they were having pretty good games in the first two months, mm-hmm. they weren't having good attendance. I mean, they had, they had a game in May where uh, they brought in, I think it was Boston was coming in. I think Carly Stromsky was one of my, I can't remember who the players were, but they had some really good players with Boston. And I remember Max Soriano was quoted as saying, wow, here we had these guys who were coming in. They had been part, they had actually come to the city during the forward thrust levy to help us pass the levy. So we were thinking all these people would be well-known players. They helped the city get a stadium built in the future and we'll have a really big crowd. 7,000 people showed up. Hmm. So I, I think the the handwriting was on the wall for TV. They just didn't think it was worth paying a lot of money to do, and they weren't sure that they'd be making any money off of advertising revenue because there weren't enough fans who would be watching. And it's all driven by how many fans, how many people are listening or watching to your to your station. Advertising wasn't those days anyway. So what? they just... And, they, and they couldn't they couldn't remake the deal on concessions. Same thing with radio. The listenership wasn't huge. 
So they couldn't do that either. It just was, they should have gone to the city, however, and said, look, we're not going to pay you for the stadium. You didn't get it done. That's one of the questions I would ask. And all, if, if Dewey Soriano were alive today, I'd ask him why he didn't do that. Right. I'd also ask him, why did you, why did you bring in Marvin Milks when Edo Vanny had been done doing such a good job for the AAA team and was so popular in the city? Why did you do that? Because I, I, it, it, it's curious to me why he did that. And then he ran into some personality problems or something with Ito because Ito was one of the guys trying to line up people to buy the team out of you know out of the bankruptcy, but they wouldn't give him any data for some reason. So I don't know if there was something else going on there. So I'd be real interested to know whether that was an issue. You know, earlier you mentioned uh, Jim Bout and I mentioned Ball Four mm-hmm. in August, just to kind of give it a little local flavor in addition to the two Houston guys who came to the pilots and got fired as marketing guys. Uh, Jim Bouton was traded in August uh, to Houston and ended the 1969 year in Houston. And ball four includes some stuff in there about uh, his Houston team teammates. Great book ball four. And this is kind of an, a bookend to ball four. Mm-hmm. And loves and kind of pulled back the curtain. And I kind of, through these two insiders, pulled back the curtain or unlocked the front office door and let people look into the, you know, what was happening in the front office of that same kind of immortalized 1969 team, which made it kind of a, a real interesting book into Jim Bout's ball four. Let me ask you this. I'm not sure if you'll know this, but this is just a random question. Sure. I, the team colors for the pilots were royal blue, gold, and white. And I believe that's the same team colors that the Mariners had when they first started, right? Yeah, yeah. Is there is. something about I, those I colors? If that was uh, intentional, but I would suspect it was. I mean, uh, the Mariners, uh, Dewey Soriano was a, 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 a he uh, was a Marine pilot. So he, he uh, steered big ships on the Puget Sound. So there's a, there's a real Mariner connection there. So I wouldn't be surprised if the colors and even the team name had some connection to the history of, of the pilots because he was a pilot on the seas and we had Boeing here as their headquarters were here. So it was kind of a combination of airline pilot and, and sea pilot mm-hmm. that, that ended up with their name that way. So, the answer is I don't really know, but yeah. I'd be surprised if there was a connection. Okay, before we go, did you want to tell everybody where you can, where they can find your book? Yeah, thanks. The, it's it's live on Amazon, both paperback and uh, an ebook, and they can get it in their local bookstores if they just go in and say, "Hey, I want to order Inside Pitch," and and uh, the bookstores know how to get it, uh, ordering from another source mm-hmm. other than Amazon. I know a lot of people want to support their local small businesses and bookstores and things like that. So it's readily available uh, and it's selling well. It's also got reviews, really, really good reviews from early reviewers. And I only know two of them. So it's not like I'm stacking the deck there. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. Well, I actually, uh, when I was checking out your book, you know, kind of seeing what it was about, I did read the reviews and what I read, it was pretty good. I mean, everybody, they really enjoyed it. Well, it was fun writing. It really was. I mean, and, and one last thing I should say, one of the things that's been happening is 
as I've advertised the book, there's about a thousand people talking to each other on my Facebook page, Rick Allen author, uh, at, on Facebook. And there's a story in the book about Lou Pinella coming into the, as a manager, coming into the clubhouse and tipping over a table of food and starting a fire with the sternal cans that was about ready to burn down the clubhouse. And the guy who, who prepared the food and placed it on that table, when Lupinella walked in and tipped it over, contacted me, and he said, I'm so glad you included that story. I was there when it happened. Wow. And then I got a call from a guy who said, you know, on the Milwaukee side, I, I've got a friend whose mom was the one who they contacted as a seamstress when those uniforms got there just before the season started. They needed to take all the patches off and so on Milwaukee patches because they didn't have any uniforms. So those uniforms took the field, pilot uniforms, took the field in Milwaukee as brewer uniforms. And he says, I even know, they even, uh, she took the patches off from the pilots. And I said, well, do you know this, where this guy is? He said, yeah, I'll give you his phone number. I called the guy up and he says, yeah, my grandmother got a call. She was working at a, at a clothing cleaning place where all the sports teams got their stuff uh, cleaned and the brewers called and said we need a seamstress and she said well my daughter's a seamstress and it was this guy's mom mm-hmm. so she takes all the patches off puts all the brewer patches on and she keeps the pilot's patches and she takes them to all the team mothers in her 10 year old sandlot kids league mm-hmm. his team sews on the seattle pilots 1969 major league patches on their t-shirts and the Seattle Pilots take the field in 1970 on a Milwaukee sandlot. Wow. <laughs> Just things like that over and over. So the, uh, I mean, Milwaukee, the Brewers colors are pretty similar. They have like a, they're kind of a darker blue, but they have blue and yellow. Yeah. they And I think they. they Is that how they had, got that? They actually had plans to go in a different direction. But I think what happened is they got kind of got, because it was so close to the start of the season, they had to take those uniforms out on the on the field, and they just kind of stuck with those. And, you know, they started to revise them a little by little. Yeah. But they had to stick with them because that's what took the field. Wow, that's amazing. That story reminds me of something. Have you ever heard the story about why the Pittsburgh Steelers only have the logo on one side? No. So what it was is they didn't have the logo at all. And they were going to test out the logo. So the, I guess it was the owner or the general manager, whoever made this decision, but they were like, let's just put it on one side just to test it out. And it just stayed that way. I always wondered, I I had to Google it. I had to find out because it was killing me. Yeah. And what made you Google it? What made you think of that? Because I'm just watching the game and I'm just like, why do they only have it on one side? I have to look this up. Interesting. You're, you're, you're a curious journalist, just like me. <laughs> I'll say, I, I, I should ask you, did, did, uh, do you have a copy of the book? Because I'll send you a copy if you'd like one. No, I don't have one, but I'd I'll love it. One. Yeah. Yeah, send me, uh, go on Facebook on the messaging and send me your address and I'll, I'll send you a copy of the book. Okay, you're going to sign it? I'll sign it for you. That way if it gets famous, it'll yes. be worth millions. Yes, 
All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. I enjoyed your story, and I can't wait to read the book. And I will share it with people, but they can't smudge the autograph. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your asking me. All right. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll see you next time on Astros Baseball. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.